0: Good afternoon. I'm Joe Dworsky, and welcome to this week's Freedom to Buy podcast. Presented each week by Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables credit card payments for cannabis merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate our audience on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. Today's guest is a CPA with over 14 years of professional experience across multiple industries, ranging from real estate, healthcare, fintech, cannabis, crypto, and tech startups. Uh, in addition, uh, Zach was an honoree on the 40 under 40 list, I think back in 2021. Please welcome to the show, Zach Gordon. Zach Gordon. Hey, Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's our pleasure, and I hope I got everything right in the intro. <laughs> the only thing I would say is I still have a couple of uh, years on the forty under forty list. So I didn't nail twenty two. Okay, good. I'm gl- <laughs> That's great. Well, once again, you know, it's
0: great to have you on today's show, and uh, to get a chance to learn more about what you're doing uh, across the board in the uh, world of accounting and the areas that we discussed. Let's just take a step back. I gave a little little snippet about your uh, your background, but for our audience, can you uh, talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into the world of accounting, what attracted you to it, and then how you you made a switch, I understand
1: as well, to the other side if you if you will. So, it's been uh, an interesting journey and I've had what you would call a non-traditional CPA career. But start on very traditionally. Went to school, went to Binghamton, great accounting school um, so finished there Start off in a um, mid-sized accounting firm called Mark Spanneth at the time CBIS these days and went down the usual path got my license saw tax audit advisory so I got to see the whole bigger picture and got to the point where basically stay for forever stay for life or make the jump to as you sort of alluded to the other side of the table and that being uh, yeah. from as a CPA looking at the, the client life so being in private industry and i made the jump to private equity and started off doing some some controller work and wound up doing a bit more of the deal structuring on uh, some of the more hefty work you know getting involved with uh, deals and just structuring a lot more fun and in that time i got much more involved in, in the tech space and wound up uh actually you know, with a tech startup and we were able to raise some money uh and started doing that full time so being able to build a company from the ground up and, and that was such an awesome experience and obviously a, a couple of challenges along the way.
0: Okay, great. So your accounting uh, degrees gave you an entree into the private equity world where you were able to then transition to actually the structuring side as well as the fundraising side and running a company, it sounds like.
1: Exactly right. So basically, you know, accounting is... It's what you make of it. You know, I, I think there's a, a lot of stereotypes about accounting being really boring. And, uh, you know, you're sitting in a back room with an adding machine, with the, the green visor and all that, but that's honestly not the reality. I mean, even, regardless of where you are in the accounting industry, it's what, what you make of it. And, and I, I think it can be very exciting if you find that part of the industry that you're passionate about. And that's I've great. been pretty fortunate to find a couple areas that just, that just right. work for me. Right. Well, listen. Two, two things. It, you know,
0: I, I would imagine that if you're in the, the world of accounting, you enjoy numbers, working with numbers. But in addition, uh, you know, financials are critical to the success of any company. Okay, so the uh, the controller, the accountant, you know, within that company, even if it's in the private equity world, and, and someone who can quench the numbers is critical. Okay, so. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say boring. I understand the the moniker that's out there, but I see it as a critical component to the success uh, in any company, any industry. So, um, you know, that's the way that uh, I, I think. Hopefully, most people see it as well. But that being said, so you made the transition, uh, and I see that. Obviously, you worked in many sectors within the private equity uh, arena. Whether it's crypto, cannabis, real estate, healthcare, is there anyone that you're you, you're you're focused on today? Is are you focused strictly on cannabis, or is it still agnostic across the board in different industries?
1: I, I sort of like to get my hands dirty in uh, a few different areas, but my you know if, if we can call it day to day, it's mainly crypto and cannabis, splitting time there, and. It's just funny because usually, again, going back to stereotypes, you know, accountants, CPAs were a little risk-averse. I think I've run in the exact opposite direction from uh, from a, a niche perspective. I, I don't know if they get any more risky than crypto or cannabis. But uh, honestly, it, it's one of those things I sort of got into by accident. And, or by circumstance, let's say, probably a better word. And it, it's been an awesome ride ever since. Can you expand how you you know, by circumstance or by
0: accident got involved in, in the industry and that now you now love. Of, of course.
1: So, uh, during, during my time in startup land, uh, I was going be working quite a few are and coincidentally in the office next to mine was a retired wall street professional who was deploying capital into the space. And so we hit it off and, uh, it just sort of went from there. Uh, I think we had some complimentary pieces where he had access to capital, he had access to deals. And from a more financial perspective, I was able to come in and try to help with the due diligence, try to, we talk about the, the numbers being important, try to read what story the, the financials told. And, and that's really key if you're doing any sort of due diligence, if you're trying to set up any sort of infrastructure or a greater business at scale, those numbers tell you everything you need to know. And that's how I really got my first foray back in 2016. So if you're thinking about crypto CryptoCanvas at that time, it is an even more gray landscape than it is now. And it afforded me the opportunity to speak to, uh, uh, representatives from the AICPA, the New York state society of CPA, so the governing bodies as a CPA and, um, reach out to local politicians or basically anyone I could think of. One, from a perspective of frankly self preservation you know, am I going to get myself into trouble here by working in these industries? <laughs> and, uh, two being, a a, a more typical accountant from this mindset, but what what sort of guidance is available? You know, who's done this before? What sort of authorities have laid out the the proper path from a compliance perspective? And at that point, it didn't really exist. So I was able to work with the New York State Society of CPAs to set up the one of the first cannabis industry committees. So we were able to bring together different CPAs, lawyers, finance professionals, business owners, and operators. The, to come up with the one place where we can either share ideas share experiences or help to frame what that next step in the industry looked like
0: okay that's so uh, been uh in it are you,
1: no that's fascinating
0: i mean uh so obviously you're entrenched if you will which is a good thing in a good way uh in, in the cannabis industry and obviously timing couldn't be better given the recent uh you know passage of cannabis use if you will in, in the state of new york uh so that obviously uh, is, timing has worked well. I mean, you've been involved, obviously you set up these uh, committees back in 2016, so I guess everything that you see coming to fruition now, I guess the um uh, the New York State Society of CPAs obviously, uh, and the American Institute of CPAs have seen a lot more activity in the cannabis space. What can you share with us on those? Two organizations. I mean, with the passage of the legislation in the state of New York, I, I would imagine you know you're seeing a lot of activity with all the dispensaries that are opening up across the state. And how are you involved with that? Are you are you more involved stri- strictly, you know, from a capital fundraising perspective, structuring perspective? Or are you still utilizing your CPA cap uh, in yeah. that uh, with these? New regulations and laws being passed.
1: Oh, the the CPA cap never comes off. Let's be honest. Once <laughs> once you get those magical three letters, they uh, they stick with you for life. But I've had the the benefit of being able to work across a multitude of different states before they are passed. So being able to see some of the good, the bad, the ugly national level, it, it brings perspective. And especially with New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, etc., cetera, sort of not coming out at exactly the same time, but you know moving as a, a a broader region uh it did help with a certain perspective so to answer your question yeah I, i've been involved deeply as a cpa as an advisor uh, you know as far back as taking our first look at the mrta and the crta which sort of you know the predecessors to what we have today coming up with not only a more practical explanation and model you know a financial model for what the tax and the the tax implications of what the true economics are, a state with the economic scale of New York would look like. Just trying to, again, be able to translate that so that uh, someone who's maybe not an experienced operator from a business perspective or maybe has had success in other industries and that's trying to make the job to cannabis, uh, make it easy enough to to digest because we are dealing with some pretty significant compliance and, and tax challenges here. So, are
0: you dealing with the actual dispensary the mso you're dealing with you know, those
1: are your clients correct dispensaries cultivators manufacturers basically up and down the vertical as well as ancillary so okay. basically first you know determining if uh, from a tax perspective if two e is is applicable and just really really quick two e basically it states that if you are in a plant touching business if you are uh, trafficking as a more te- technical term again, are a bit of a gray area as well, that you are not allowed to deduct for tax purposes your operating expenses, which becomes a really, really sticky point. Mm -hmm. And uh, it leads to some huge tax bills. Uh, It makes cash management incredibly important. And just strategy is is as essential as it is in any other industry, but it's just highlighted a bit more here just because of those... Extra issues.
0: Interesting. So, obviously, anybody who's plant touching—that's the problem with the uh, 280e. That's where it applies. So it's not. So expand on that a little bit further. You know, for our listeners, I'm thinking about this as you say it. So that that's a big issue. So how do you work with, you know, the the clients, if you will, to you know. Address the
1: 280E statute? Yeah, well, a uh, great question. And the answer, like all great accounting questions, it depends. And uh, really, it starts with documentation. And what I mean by that is coming up with what your policies and procedures are and what you can allocate to cost of goods sold, which uh, is allowed because it's not a deduction, it's technically a reduction in, in revenue. So you have your Gross revenue. So let's just say you're a dispensary, you sell product. Let's not that that's top line. But then defining what is your cost of goods sold? What can you directly allocate to that sale? And if you're a dispensary, really, as of this moment in time, the acceptable answer there for the most part is inventory. Yeah, which again is still a bit of a uh, discussion as well. I wonder if you're in other of the cannabis vertical so if you're a cultivator if you're a manufacturer processor then you have some opportunities to uh, allocate some additional costs So, whether that's from square footage so if, if there's a lease then you know there's some potential costs that can be allocated you know some of the ancillary expenditures that you know we would be comfortable with allocating there put that into writing and come up with that process and processes can, will always be updated and changed but just make sure that you have the proper documentation there so that we can tell that financial story again so if any sort of authority whether it's the irs whether it's the state uh, whether it's any investors anyone else wants to come and take a look at how you got to the numbers that you're presenting on your financial statements we already know how we got there and we already have the proverbial stack of papers that you can plop down on the table yeah proverbially that's you know we're digital age here but you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Exactly right. And, and so that, that allows you to have everything clearly defined. And that's so incredibly important. Now, let me, let me understand one thing.
0: Obviously, you're in New York. You're a member of the, you know, New York State Society of CPAs that we discussed. But you said earlier that prior to uh, legislation, you know, for the approval of cannabis in the state of New York, you were working outside the state with other clients. And I imagine you still do. Um, was that New York, New Jersey? Uh, what, where, where else across the country, you know, were you uh, working with clients that helped you, you know, understand the hurdles and the roadblocks, you know, mm-hmm. that you're going to have to overcome and that you did overcome that,
1: that you can bring back to the state of New York? Yeah, so for the longest time, California okay. and Colorado were benchmarks. I mean, they were the first markets that really, really got uh, this cannabis industry going at scale. and Slightly different journeys for each of those markets, and you can certainly put the Pacific Northwest uh, up there as well. But they give a good baseline. So having clients there, and again, running the gamut Spats or used cultivator, etc. Uh, I've been unique experiences along the way. Uh, for example, uh, it's not every day you get to walk into a privately owned bank vault that is stacked floor to ceiling with cash. cash. And that's <laughs> one of those unique experiences that uh, yeah, sort of helps it. you a little bit. But, but it's experiences like that that really, really prepared myself and many of the other professionals I've worked with for A state like New York, you know, not just that it's our home state, but it's also an economic superpower. Uh, Being able to learn from the good and the bad and the ugly, as I said before, really, really comes a long way to helping to make this as efficient as possible Uh uh, from a New York perspective. Right. Well,
0: I mean, and you give a perfect, you know, example of why we are doing what we're doing at SuperNet, you know, because, you know, when you walked into that vault, just with all that cash, I'm sure that's a nice experience. Um, you know, obviously the the roadblock has been in banking, even though you have you know over five hundred banks that are banking cannabis, but once again it's still all cash. Okay, because you have pin debit, which, you know, is available. There was cashless ATMs which is being shut down, but there is no true credit card solution for the cannabis industry. You know, I can go across the street, get a slice of pizza, charged. I can go to Costco, charge it, I can go all around town you know, using my credit card, but I can't go to the local dispensary and use a credit card, okay? And that still presents a problem, and that's why at SuperNet, you know, we're building the rails, if you will, the network where cannabis dispensaries, MSOs, you know, all touching businesses, you know, can utilize true credit. Okay, True credit to help them run their business businesses more efficiently. as you stated, you know, from the accounting perspective, trying to make it run more efficiently. so this is this is very interesting and and very informative and timely. But let me just segue to my next question. You know you've had experience, obviously, you know, in other areas that you mentioned, when you made the shift to private equity, You started getting involved with the deal-making, the fundraising, the access to capital. Obviously, we're running, uh, you know, operating in a very challenging time, to say the least, with what's been going on in the economy and rising rates over the last year and a half. How are you seeing that impact uh, these cannabis businesses in terms of raising capital and access to capital, if you will?
1: That's an amazing question and, uh, one that I think we could probably take another hour to go through if we're being honest but it, it is a major challenge right now to raise capital. It's not just from the broader economic forces, but also from a compliance perspective, mm-hmm. uh, there are, especially if we're just talking New York at the moment, there are rules about where you can get your capital from, certain disclosures that have to be met, and it's created this really narrow field of opportunity. We know at the, the broadest levels that institutional investment just really isn't there, there's certainly a cannabis premium on any financial products that are available. So you mentioned high rates, that's been a reality for the cannabis industry since the beginning. I mean, it, it used to be a certain point where, uh, you know, if you were in the, the teens from a, an interest rate perspective, you were certainly not happy, but that was something that you could stump. and yeah, that, that's just, that creates an overhead problem in addition to the tax issues and everything else that comes with being in this industry. So there's no question that if it was a challenge before, it's an even greater challenge now, especially if you're operating in a state like New York, that not only is complex from a a compliance perspective, but just as a little extra flavor with everything being even more expensive to operate in other states. Mm -hmm. Are you
0: equally involved in in that side of the business still in terms of the structure and the fundraising or...
1: I mean, That's, not, it's, it's all part of it. So, you know, if not all having a CPA hat but having a CFO hat, quite the dance, honestly, to get the structure right while also being compliant. And there's been a few structures out there that have been flowed in the past. And for some reason are coming back in vogue. Uh, I think we've seen some of the management company models that to be very frank, I would not touch at all. It, it, they sound great on paper. However, what IRS, what other authorities will do is they will just collapse the structure and then you'll get penalties, fines, and, and all the rest that come with that because you have, there is no getting around 280. There is no getting around
0: paying tax. Can you talk about these, these structures that you mentioned, these management structures that, you know,
1: that you've seen exactly. out there? And, and all the disclaimers, not any official advice here, hear anything like that, no. but just <laughs> speaking in the hypothetical course you know specific mm-hmm. you know, parties involved but if you have a cannabis operator and you want to come up with something that is yeah you're going to try to minimize the the tax hit that 280e can apply mm-hmm. uh, there's sh- you know theoretical structures out there where you create a separate entity that is the management company so that's where employees are housed that's where uh, contracts live that's where your utilities are paid from, et cetera, et cetera. So basically all the operations are handled by this other entity and all you have going into the cannabis company itself are the sales and you know, basically holding the license. And so fear, you know, the, the prevailing theory is that, oh, well, it's not touching the, the play, you know, you're not, you're not selling anything. It's just running at a loss or maybe a small markup or something like that. <laughs> Any, just, just no, please don't do that. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that, of course. But right. The, but I imagine mean, comes, comes from you know, the IRS coming in and then seeing, yeah. we're, we're not dummies here. We know that that's exactly what you did. We're going to collapse this entity. We're going to calculate what the real tax due is. And then you're going to be paying percent on top of percent on top of percent to make it right. Uh huh. You
0: know, that being said, it, it brings me to my next question that kind of just you know popped in because I remember having a conversation uh, uh, with a colleague about this my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong and, and educate our audience that different states have different tax rates I mean the tax rates obviously every state has their own tax rates on different products but on cannabis I mean I I think there's a big I mean big spread. Between oh and what's and so what a state like California is charging versus who they were the first one into the marketplace and they're saturated now, whereas New York is new to the game. Can you talk a little bit about the um, the differences and the spreads, if you will, and uh, different tax rates across the country in different
1: states, if you will? Of course, and it, it's such a bigger issue than just the the rates themselves, but it's the structures. So you've got certain states where not only will there be sales tax at the the retail level, the dispensaries, but there will also be excise taxes, there'll be certain transaction taxes, there'll be THC content taxes. At a certain point, you start running out of uh, terms (laughs) to describe all these, these different taxes at different levels. So it can become very punitive. And where this becomes an even bigger issue is... Than having the cost of the end consumer being even remotely competitive from an economic perspective with the illicit market. So if think about this logically in super simple sample, a, a gram of cannabis costs a dollar at the cultivator level. Costs you know the the cultivator a dollar to create that that gram, get it ready to to, to ship. Uh-huh. So that dollar then goes to the processor to be charged into X Y Z. Doesn't matter there's a certain markup there involved because everybody's going to make something along the way. Well, if you have an excise tax or if you have a sort of, uh, THC content tax, or whatever it might be at that mid tier level, that's getting built in and then passed along to the next. So you keep adding costs, uh, up top at every layer of the vertical at the end point, it's a consumer who's going to pay for that. And so, you know, that dollar now is $11 and 27 cents. Wow, whereas if you just go to the you go to the illicit market, it is it is not eleven dollars.
0: It is right, but so let me ask significantly you significantly less. Right. So what would that be? But different states, that, that dollar in different states, one state might be, you know, all in eleven. I guess other states might be seven. I, I would imagine different states based on the um the maturity of that market, is that fair to say?
1: If only were that linear, but actually. It's even deeper than that because it does this. It depends on sometimes it's the legislation that defines you mm-hmm. know some of these quirky structures. Sometimes it's the market themselves. You're right, but th- there's much more to it than that. And it, if only were that simple, right? But I guess that's why, for good reason, there will almost certainly be this sort of uh, protective nature around these solo markets, how they're they're set up right now. Because if you look at pretty much any other industry, outside of certain you know small bags, certain you know local focused products, you're going to manufacture where it's the cheapest and then ship it to where consumers are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And given that you can't cross state lines for cannabis, that's not happening. A so,
0: right. but even though it's costing more in many of these, you know jurisdictions. Mm-hmm whether it's recreational or medicinal i mean uh, someone in a state like colorado where you know you had the recreational laws i would imagine the consumer is still walking into the you know dispensary to buy it through the dispensary versus you know the illicit market so even with the the higher markups people still want to go into their local dispensary and purchase it do you see any hindrance to sales in these different jurisdictions because of the different, uh, taxes that have,
1: you know, that we discussed without a doubt, you look, you take a look at California, the illicit market there, arguably has never been more powerful. Really? Oh yeah. It, and it's, one of those things so, things it's so it's impacting. So it's impacting Sure. the, uh, the legal market is what you're saying. Oh, oh without, without a doubt. doubt. And I think, uh, most consumers will pay up to a point have some quality assurance to know that, you know, they're working on the the legal side of the market, as it were, that there's all these different controls in place, et cetera. However, everybody's got a line. And I think what you saw happen in California in particular is just tax after tax, the, the system was pushed to that line and then passed. And there was just this big reaction and it's something that they're still trying to figure out. So from that end. A lot of states, a lot of markets, have to be very wary of that, and that's something that I hope in New York we're being very cognizant of as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, do you see a difference? You know, I, I don't want to get make this political at all, but do you see a difference in you know uh, blue states versus red states where you have cannabis legislation in terms of the the tax structure?
1: I don't think it's. I, I honestly don't even think it's easy enough to break it down just by red state versus blue state, mm-hmm. but I think it goes much deeper than that. I think it does go down to the individual legislation and how, how simple, it's probably not the simple, not the right word, but how complex, probably the better way to look at this, the, that legislation is how complex the program, the, the cannabis program itself is operated it. mm-hmm. and that's the bigger driver. So if you have a lot of red tape, if you have a lot of steps, a lot of barriers, then it's just it's easier for the consumer to justify you know i'm not gonna put up with this so i'll I'll just stick with yeah well we'll my means of of acquiring said products are now i'm going to stick with that right i I don't want to pay the higher cost or after a certain point of novelty wears off i'm good you know i'll stick with what works I'll, i'll save the
0: money okay so hopefully uh you know these barriers will slowly come down i mean obviously you know the revenues there for these states. The question is, does the revenue continue to grow, or do these uh, taxes, you know, slow that down? Where it it benefits the illicit market, as you you know indicated in California. So those are issues that will have to be addressed as the you know the, the industry continues to mature and more and more states uh, you know legalize cannabis and eventually on a federal level. Do you have any thoughts on the federal, uh, you know, uh, legalization? Uh, uh, you know, when you when that might be, or
1: <laughs> based on your experience? Oh goodness! The one thing I just <laughs> want to add, first from our, our prior, you know, the prior line there, which sure. is just the balancing of social equity on top of the the, the needs from an ec- economic perspective. perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so just trying to to meet in the middle there is is a really really difficult it's as difficult as it gets. So trying to balance out every state has a tax bill to pay, you know, everyone, every state wants to maximize their tax revenue, I should say. And this is a great means to do that. However, some of the inspiration for these programs is also to ensure that communities that have been significantly affected by the war on drugs are also empowered. So just getting that that middle ground is... I really, really highlight the law. And it seems like certain states are, are trying to get there. And I think at its heart, New York has that in mind. It's just a matter of execution. So, again, finding that balance and getting that execution is going to be key. Now, we're talking <laughs> federal legalization. Uh, that's a very broad term. And it's something that's sort of an interesting topic. And what I mean by that is that the topic of descheduling has come up quite a bit with the Biden administration and it's something that they said they would visit. Now there there are absolutely no specifics given and there's been an occasional like oh we'll take a look at this at the end of the quarter and the next session and the next year etc. But if they can actually follow through on that during his turn that becomes uh, a unique opportunity for the great market. Now just to to key everyone everyone in uh, terminology so Currently, cannabis is a Schedule One drug, so it is listed at the same level as other illicit drugs, you know, the the cocaine of the world. And what that means is that you're not there's no medical benefit. there. Basically, you can't go anywhere near it for all types of purposes, financial, any sort of economic perspective. Don't no go. What has been proposed is moving it from Schedule One down, so two, three, four, five, or completely off that schedule altogether. Now, that gets us to the point of uh, the devil we know versus the devil we don't know. Some pretty logical follow-up questions are who would be the logical authority for for cannabis as a national market? Great question. Uh, I that's another hour on top of the hour. Right. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> it is, it is. And it's all, it's all fascinating. It's all interesting. It's fast moving uh the industry uh, i'm sure eventually you know you're going to have um you know legalization you know on a federal level uh, but it's a matter of you know when uh, is it is it a year two years three years is it going to be this year nobody seems to really uh, know but that will not slow down uh, the continuation of this being approved on a state-by-state Basis, you know, being put on the ballot. Um, I think this has really been very eye-opening and informative, Zach. I, I really appreciate your time today uh, to learn about what you're doing within this space, uh, your background, and how it's expanded and and how it's continuing to uh, grow within the cannabis industry. And I really appreciate the time that you uh, gave us today to talk to our listeners. Uh, if anybody you know wants to reach out to you, who's ever listening to our show today, whether it's you know uh, MSOs, dispensaries, or so forth, how can uh, people find you and
1: be in contact with you? Yeah, of course. Everyone's always free to shoot me an email. Uh, Zia and Zach G O R D O L at Propeller uh, Propeller is and that's our CFO firm. We've been around for about fifteen years. We serve a multitude of different industries. Uh, so we're always happy to talk. And you can find me individually, Zach Gordon, CPA on on social.
0: Okay, great. Terrific. Thanks for listening to today's Freedom to Buy podcast presented by SuperNet. Uh, you can learn more about our payment network by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can also listen to past episodes and today's episode on cannabisradio.com as well as Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please join us next week on our next show of Freedom to Buy. Thanks, everybody. Have a good afternoon.